This is the Strength Anger Podcast, part of the Berserker Strength Radio Network, featuring APF Illinois State Chairman Eric Stone, as well as AAPF AWPC Powerlifter Robert Bain. We are coming at you from 2XL Powerlifting in Lombard, Illinois, and you can find this podcast online on anchor.fm. All right, Mr. Bain, here we are, episode 21 of the Strength Anger podcast. Today, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk about something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Um, I still think related to powerlifting, certainly related to you and I. Very much so. We are going to talk about autism and how it can relate to powerlifting. Yeah, I think this is going to be a good episode. Uh, Again, personal experience for both of us with this. I think that's why uh, we both kind of wanted to do it, and I think it's going to be a great springboard for people to dig into this more. This is a huge topic, just autism in general, and then how it does relate to strength sports and powerlifting specifically. I think it's a a really cool thing for people to go down that rabbit hole, even outside of this episode. Yeah, and uh, we had talked about that maybe having my wife on, maybe even your daughter on, to talk about women in powerlifting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scheduling-wise, did not work. So we we called an audible, and we will... Omaha, Omaha. We will touch back on that, especially since we do have the women's empowerment meet that my wife Jackie is running on Sunday. Yeah. So Sunday, let, Sunday, Sunday. Let's tie up some loose ends from last week, Bane. Mm-hmm. Um, last week, we were very angry and very strong. <laughs> I will say, and that we released that episode a little bit later in the week, mm-hmm. and looking at the listen count, it is looking like it's trending higher than previous episodes. Ooh, exciting. So, Apparently. Is that because of the content or because we're getting more listeners overall? That is the question. Um, I think it's probably uh, the listenership looks pretty similar up okay. and down. Um, but, you know, it, sometimes it's just in a title. And, you know, yeah. I, I think sometimes people like they look at the title and some episodes can have good content in it. But maybe mm-hmm. the, the title we need to work on. Uh, so but get back on our clickbait game. Got it. Yes. I'm not sure that I have that all up to date. <laughs> We did get some feedback on this episode, probably a little bit more than normal for me. We'd yeah, I, I got a, I probably had half a dozen people that reached out specifically about this episode, so I think it, uh, it was good. Um, Definitely some people here uh, at the gym personally that talked to me and said they laughed at how angry we were. <laughs> they thought especially my ear cancer yelling into the mic about uh, t- <laughs> spotters touching the bar. Oh my God, that was the best. Uh, we had a couple people who said they agreed with Rip, and then I said, what part? The part where he didn't know the, the rules. Power, the part we didn't know the rules, and then they didn't really respond. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's okay. You can agree with Rip. That's, you, you're certainly entitled to your opinion, even if it's wrong. It's what? <laughs> wrong. Wrong. Incorrect. False. Bogus. Bullshit. <laughs> so, yeah, that, I think it was a good one. And, gosh, I've kind of toyed around this idea, Bane, and maybe we both can think about this of, like, maybe following up an episode with a written blog expanding on the same kind of thoughts and maybe kind of a, an article blog post to go alongside of it. Um, cause I, I still have some thoughts on this and I would like to almost do a dissection of his article because I think I could do a point by point, uh, you know, rebuttal in written form. I don't know that I have the time to do it, but I certainly right. have. I, I'm I'm potentially on board with that. Obviously, we're sitting here talking show strategy uh, over the the podcast, but I, I 
there's a lot to unpack there when you start getting into the whole blog thing. You know, I've I've kind of toyed with that a little bit uh, previously, even uh, Sans podcast, also alongside a podcast. It, 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 there's a lot that goes into that. Sure, I've just thought about that. You know, we we take the time to do these show notes, and I've got kind of some thoughts on things. And yeah. you know, it might make sense to even go back to old episodes for me to re-listen, and then you know, maybe you write something that you know kind of is co-ops with it. And and I, and I think we we will get to the point here probably fairly soon that probably necessitates that we'll follow up on episodes and follow up with like long-term feedback because again we're doing these weekly right and so we drop an episode on a on a thursday or a wednesday and we start getting feedback by friday saturday and then boom you know it's monday tuesday and we're, and we're recording again so sure uh so i think that and we've gotten some decent feedback as far as even rebuttals to our arguments not even on the rip show but just in general uh that i think would it bears merit yeah and i would like to do uh, uh an a U A episode. Ask us anything. Yeah, so we should always uh, like say what that means because that sounds really inappropriate. A U A. What does that sound like? Something that probably you get paid extra for. But sure. <laughs> Transitioning forward, Bane. Full transition. What is going on with you? Uh, you know, man, I'm I'm in the groove of things. Uh, training. You know, training was it was decent this weekend. It uh, you know it wasn't bad, but it definitely wasn't great. You know, we squat heavy doubles is really what this uh, wave of the program is, and so I, you know, I squatted six seventy five for a double, way slower than I wanted to. Uh, as you said on my way up on my second one, it looked like I was fighting through molasses. Thanks for that, Dick. Uh, hey, I mean, you'll always know. I'll be honest. You, you, you call him like you see him, and you weren't wrong. So, uh, but you know, the the positive is I am you know doubling previous meat PRs uh, fairly regularly right now, so that's good. Uh, so maybe you'll finally squat 700 and a meet. I swear to God, I'm going to throw you through this fucking table. Anyway. Wow. Talk about <laughs> talk about strength and anger. So so I, I, have my own, I have my own way of motivating myself. I, I shit you not, I have watched my 694 squat from Worlds every single day since that meet. What? Every single day I have watched that squat. I am shocked right now. This and, is the first time I've heard this, folks, by the way. And the reason being is because it infuriates me. And it's my own doing. I, I'm the one who has caused this because I'm not the one who executes on meat day that I have not squatted 700 pounds yet. And so I just, as excited as I was hitting that lift and hitting a big PR at a meet that was cool, it's still not enough. It's not the number I want. And so I just remind myself that as cool as that was, you're not there yet. And just to rewind back in my mind, that was a repeated second attempt? It was. So you got, what, called on depth on your second or just missed your second? Uh, no, I, I came out of the hole and stalled. Okay, yes. Al- now almost repeated nationals with a 30-second squat. <laughs> Long okay. stand-up ever. Okay, I do remember that now, yes. Yeah, and so it just... I, I think I called you a coontair higher on your third, and we got hashtag two white lights. Uh, at Worlds? Or at Nationals? Yeah, at Worlds. Uh, no, I got three whites on, the, uh, oh, well. on the, the big one. But at Nationals, it was two whites. Oh, okay. Well, it was, I still called you a Kunter higher on yeah. the third one. Yeah. So it, uh, I, I remind myself daily that it's, it's not enough yet. And call it obsessive, but whatever. Uh, and I'm getting back on my travel game again. I'm actually kind of excited for that. I'm flying to Florida in, uh, in a couple weeks and doing four days down there. And then uh, I come back. We go As to the if Arnold. we haven't traveled to Florida enough. Yeah. And then I go, we go to the Arnold. I'm there in Ohio for f- whatever, five days. I get back and the following Tuesday, no, actually mon- we get back on Sunday night. Monday night I fly to New York and I'm 
doing this whole travel thing again. So, okay. going to be fun. I'm excited about it. But I'm seeing old friends and, and doing all that fun stuff. So, uh, Stone, what is going on with you? Well, I turned 37 a few days ago. So do you have a five-year plan? Is it don't die? <laughs> I mean, I hope I don't die in five years. Skin is loose and your balls are old. <laughs> <laughs> um, As I prepare to turn 38 and Yeah, weeks. right. Uh, wife and I, wifey and I went out, um, had a good time, went to Gibson's, went and saw Star Wars 9, yes. Episode 9. They which, got a niner in there? Yep, which I thought, uh, I thought was very good. Um, we we chat a little bit about. We don't want to go too much down the rabbit hole of Star Wars. Oh yeah, but I liked this uh, this movie. I li- I liked the previous one as well, The mm-hmm. Last Jedi. I just didn't love it. Like this one, I don't even know if I loved. I really liked it better than the last one. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a good end to this trilogy. Um, I don't think anything. I mean, it's hard to top the original nineteen seventy eighties ones. You know, the original three episode four five six. But I, I like this one. Um, I like the story arc. No spoilers. But I, Everyone I, dies. <laughs> but I thought it was very good. I, I also enjoyed it. We saw it uh, previously. Uh, it was a while back. Uh, but yeah, I, I, was, I was very excited for this one. I'm excited to see where the rest of the whole Star Wars thing goes because I've been a big fan uh, for a long time. And so uh, saw most of... Actually, since the prequel episodes... Uh, all the way through this one, I've seen every new Star Wars uh, on opening weekend, and will continue to be a nerd and do that. Okay, yeah, I think I've seen them all, but not an opening weekend. Yeah, that's like, it's like me and the Marvel thing; like it's opening weekend or, or bust. Okay, so transitioning, <laughs> transitioning, Bane. What is bullshit? Day long fucking meetings or multi day long meetings? Oh, whoa, boy! <laughs> I take it there's a story here. Yes. My my beef with these is this. The majority of these meetings are, they're not put together well in a way that is concise enough that you can keep people's attention, but at the same time, deep enough that it's going to actually grow your knowledge base, whatever it may be, whether it's sales, operations, uh, manufacturing, whatever the case may be. Even multi-day conferences I kind of have a problem with because at some point, you it's just you're hitting repeat and it's just a different voice over and over and over again. Uh, I happen to have a meeting this week that essentially was thrown together over the last five days. The content was not dry run. Uh, the content was completely slapped at. It was all over the place. And when you have the majority of the staff that is a part of this meeting is under 26, this is their first or second job, Many of them are traveling to a new city and therefore are more excited about what they're going to do afterwards than what's actually being presented in front of them. It, you don't get the mileage you're hoping for. And so it's just that frustrates me to no end because that is a very easy thing to fuck up. And generally speaking, most do with those those length of meetings. And plus, I just hate meetings in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just about to say meetings are bullshit as my, in my opinion. <laughs> it's funny because my wife... Um, still as a teacher, but now she's in administration. And so she's experiencing meetings more so than as a teacher, you like meetings on meetings on meetings. Yeah. I mean, as a teacher, you occasionally have a meeting, like maybe at most twice a month, but in admin, you have like daily meetings and weekly meetings mm-hmm. and, and they overlap and then you have back to backs meetings, of meetings about meetings. And at one of a previous job I was at, we had what I would call our horseshit meeting every Monday and Jackie would always, like, I think she didn't quite grasp it why I would always be in a bad mood when I 
would go to work that day and yep. when I'd come home that day because we'd have a two hour meeting when where nothing was accomplished Dumb. or like we'd decide on something and then like an hour later our boss would send us an email disregard just like yeah like it, just to set, like he'd ask us for our opinion we'd give it he'd say okay let's do that and then do the opposite it's like why do we have the meeting if you're just going to make the decision cool just tell us what we're doing yeah. and don't ask for in- input so yeah I agreed I'm not a big meeting fan and if you're going to have a meeting have an agenda have a short amount of time yep get in get out get on with whatever you're going to do because everyone's got shit to do exactly uh yeah it just I, I'm not gonna lie. I spent most of this meeting, and I, I have some coworkers that listen to this, and they're gonna give me shit about it. But I spent most of that meeting making sure that my pipeline was staying full and not spending two days sitting in our cafeteria watching a screen I couldn't see because I was sitting in the back and letting my lower level people sit closer, and essentially losing two days of productivity. Like fuck all that. Stone, what is bullshit? I don't know if I've hit on this one before on this podcast. I've definitely talked about it before, sure. but. Keeping your training on your phone or on something electronic is bullshit. <laughs> and here's why. Everybody spends all... And right now, Bane and I, we have our phones near us. We're not on them. Um, but, you know... I, actually, I was, but... Okay, we're recording on a computer. So we're on electronic devices right now. Yep. I'm sure when all of us are listening to this podcast, you're listening to it on some kind of electronic device. I get it. I'm on electronic devices a lot. Yeah. When you come to train come to train and get off your phone. And not as though I haven't checked my phone in a workout, I record stuff. Mm-hmm. But what I don't like is Content. When pe- <laughs> what I don't like is when people have their training logs on their phone because it's like anything. When you when you have that little electronic device in your hands and you're like, "Oh, I'll just check Facebook. Oh, I'll just check Twitter. Oh, I'll just check Instagram." Ooh, and look it, at that. Right. And oh, I'll double click that. Mm-hmm. I am a huge believer in having a paper training log that you have to physically write on. Yep. Just like when I take notes for anything, when I'm having a meeting with somebody, mm-hmm. when I'm meeting with a client, um, I always write down things in handwriting because you remember, the research shows, this is not me, this mm-hmm. is research, science, data, science shows <laughs> that you t- you retain information better when you write it down versus typing it. Yep. And in my opinion, even me, we all spend too much time on our phones, and when you go to the gym, put your GD phone away for a while. Sure, record some sets here and there so you can watch a video, but don't spend the whole workout on your... And watch it over and over and yeah, over. Yeah, watch it every day. Obsessively. <laughs> yeah, watch it every day. But uh, I'm just... I am such a believer in a paper training log. Eric Marosher of Monster Garage Gym has a great article on this, which maybe I'll repost from EliteFTS.com. I was literally about to say that before you did. Yeah, I could not agree with him more. I've always I've been keeping paper training logs since 1997, so I'm 23 years in of training logs. That's believe awesome. it or not, I, I do actually. So fun fact: uh, I the high school I went to, I was in the same conference as uh, Nate Kading. He was a kicker for the Chargers. Uh, Nate has a very cool distinction that he won five team state titles across three different sports during his high school career. Uh, he was kicker for the football teams, point guard for the basketball team, and he was a soccer player as well. Uh, all state in all three sports his senior year. They won uh, every sport that he played. They won state uh, his senior year, and then he also won. I think it was a basketball title his sophomore year, and football his junior year. He started keeping training logs when he was in seventh grade, and continued all the way through his high school, college career, the University of Iowa, and his entire NFL career until he blew his knee out. So same thing, like twenty plus years of tracking his training across all sports, everything, uh, and the. 
I'm sure you do this too, the meticulousness of doing that. There is something to be said for, for truly then understanding how your body works, how it recovers, really where where you're at versus just kind of assuming based on some hodgepodge you may have on your phone or some spreadsheet somewhere. Right. There's not space on your phone to take I mean, maybe there is. There's the notes section that you can, but it's just, it's it's so much easier just to make a note. Felt like shit. You yeah. Know? Set was felt great. Yeah. So I, I could, I could, we could spend bullshit. We could spend a whole podcast on this probably, but oh yeah, t- keeping your training log on your phone or a tablet or whatever is bullshit. Take a piece of paper, or if you're to Excel, I'll print you something on some nice cardstock and track it on there. So let's uh, let's move on, Bane, to our powerlifting USA throwback. I'm stoked about this one. I like this a lot. This is a uh, this is a good one. We're going to go back to July 2005. What were you doing July 2005? Well, I uh let's see. I was not yet graduated from college. I would have been a senior. Okay. Um <clears throat> in July 2005, I would have been doing my internship at Velocity Sports Performance. Nice. Um, where I then worked for a number of years afterward. Um I graduated in early 06. Okay. So I let's see. I would have been engaged by July '05, nice. and uh, what we're going to talk about um, in the issue I was at. I love it. This is wonderful. And how about you, July '05, Dane? July 2005. Uh, Nick and I had been married for three months. Uh, we had just found out about Lily about sixty-ish days before that. Uh, do the math, and. I we were living in Iowa. I could not even tell you what I was doing for work. I had not gotten into logistics, so I assume I was working in some restaurant. But that's uh, that's what I was doing in July of '05. But tell us about Powerlifting USA. There's all kinds of fun stuff in this one. Yeah. So the, this episode's cover issue or cover story mm-hmm. is APF Senior Nationals 2005. Seniors. And for those of you that don't understand the distinction of seniors, it comes from Olympic lifting. So seniors was the top-level lifters, so mm-hmm. not age-wise. It was in the old days there was – and this is still that's, true. That's masters, by the way, kids. Yeah. There's, that's still true in uh, Olympic lifting. Um, mm-hmm. They have seniors and, and, and juniors, and they had the senior nationals, which was your, t- your top-level lifters, and there was juniors, not the age group, but essentially lifters that weren't at the level of seniors. So – they kept that denomination at this time. APF seniors was only APF, mm-hmm. so non-tested, only the open division, okay. and only equipped. There was no raw in 05 in the APF. And all, all multiply, correct, or single ply as well? There was no single ply back then. Okay. No, or, or no distinction between them. You yeah, could, I mean, there, there was probably people lifting in single ply, but yeah, there was no distinct, there was no single ply division. Gotcha. So this was a meet of 200-plus lifters, APF seniors. Um, there was... Uh, there was, there, I'll get into it. There's issues there. Yeah. But uh, on the cover is Gary Frank, current nice. APF president. Becca Swanson, strongest woman ever. Yeah. And uh, Joe Bales, who I'm not familiar with, but he, he left at the meet. This was up in Detroit. Um, there was many issues with this meet. Sure. The first one was that it was a two-day meet, which and it should have been a three-day meet. One platform. Jesus. And again, 200 lifters. So the way the meet... All equipped. <laughs> Yeah, all equipped and all really big dudes. Like, Good like Lord. WPO level lifters, a lot of Jesus. them. The way the meet director had it set up, it was like he had a certain deadline to where if he had a certain number of lifters, not the entry deadline, but seemingly an arbitrary deadline, if he had a certain number of lifters by this arbitrary deadline, 
he would move the meat to three days. If he didn't have it, then the meat would be two days. Mm-hmm. Probably had something contractually to do with the hotel. If that was when he needed to make a decision, he should have just set the entry deadline that date. Right. So he didn't reach whatever his number was by his initial deadline. And so he said, okay, we're going to run the meet for two days. And then after the deadline, which was more modus operandi at that time, lifters often entered late. In fact, it was common at that time for lifters to enter the day of the meet. That was something that was common when I first started running meets. Sounds very Russian. Right. (laughs) No, it was very common. Down in Florida, it was uh, Amy Jackson, the APF office manager, Mm -hmm. when she started helping Karen Kidder run meets in Florida, she ran into this issue that half the lifters were used to entering the day of the meet because they figured, well, if I get injured, I don't have to pay, so I'm not going to enter the meet until the day of. Mm -hmm. I mean, if anybody's ever put on an event, it's very difficult to organize things if you don't know how many people you're going to have. How do you, uh, yeah. how do you order awards and you know how do you staff things? So it, it, this was similar then. It, it, people didn't try to enter senior nationals the day of the meet, but they would wait until close to the deadline to enter. Bullshit. Um, there was, so as a result, there was very long days. My session was delayed by a number of hours. Um, there was, did you have to do five different warmups like uh, WPC? No, and no, because they didn't tell us to start warming up. Okay. Um, I just remember sitting around waiting cause it was a double session day. Oof. Uh, they had this computer program that the meet director had written himself. Mm. This was before the days of our current program. Mm-hmm. At that time, I think at our meets, we were just using like a, a fancy Excel, you know, sheet. Right. It didn't have everything built into it. Um, but that was... Yeah, this was some kind of program the meat director wrote because he was supposedly a computer programmer, but there was all kinds of issues. They did not use scorecards, and thus when the computer went down, we could not continue the meet. They were fucked. Uh, This was infamously when uh, a lifter whom I will not name, but I know exactly who it was, put some Astro Glide on his thighs during the deadlift, after which all the lifters after that, the bar was just, Slippery as all get out. Slipping out of their hands. Yeah, and again, yeah. because they weren't using scorecards, they couldn't accurately figure out who had done it. If they had had scorecards, they could have gone back and yep. figured it out. But because the way the computer program worked, it was hard to figure out, even though most people probably had a strong idea who it was. Um, a uh, you know strong Michigan lifter, we'll just put it that way. Um, there, was some, there was some issues there. I, I remember, I think the bench only at that meet was run... I think it was supposed to be an quote afternoon session. Yeah. And they didn't even start until like eight o'clock at night. Jesus. I remember helping my teammate Sounds at the like time. A Central meet. Yeah. <laughs> I said that out loud. Whoops. Uh, I remember helping my teammate, Sydney Toms from Franz gym at the time. And like, she was in, I think the first flight and it was like eight or o'clock at night or something. Good and then Lord. the big guys, including Scott Mendelson are going to be after that. <laughs> that's, that's just, Oh, my word. So, I, I, I can feel my blood pressure rising just hearing this right now. I took sixth place in the 165s in this meet in a stacked class. Nick Hatch, uh, I think, totaled like 1,900 at 165. Oh, I was in, I think, the mid-1500s as a junior, but yeah. competing in the open. Nice. Um, so, because that's where you compete. It's the only place. Yeah. I, remember, I did set some junior records, which... Mm-hmm. I don't know if Nick Hatch eventually came up and beat because his teenage records at the, he was a teenager at the time by the way Nick Hatch Jesus he was 19 years old 
So I don't know if he then continued lifting and beat all my records. Somebody else did. Yeah. But wow. I don't, he was super, super strong. He did not stick with the sport. Um, kind of burned out maybe too much, too quickly, but hmm. a super, super strong dude. Yeah, sounds like a cheese, man. It's wild. We also had a meet report on the 2005 IPF Women's Worlds, um, a you know, kind of like internet friend of mine. I mean, we did know each other in person as well, mm-hmm. um, but someone I corresponded with online quite a bit was Cheryl Anderson. Mm-hmm. This was her first IPF Worlds. Nice. Um, there was, quote, bench press training from Louis Simmons, a West Side article. Nice. A lot of pictures of our pressing the pieces together lifter, Mike Wolf. Yes. I mean, he's looking jacked and tan. Maybe not tan, but jacked. Jacked and pale and juicy as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, talked <laughs> about, you know, max effort, dynamic effort work. A lot of talk on o- overspeed eccentrics. <laughs> Yeah, by the way, if you ever come to 2XL, you, you got to catch Eric when either you're doing some type of dy- dynamic effort work or when he is because he will always do, do the Louis voice, and it's just the best. It's one of my favorite things that Eric does. We also had uh, – yeah, well, we'll just transition right out of that. Yeah, the, the lawsuit's in the mail from West Side. <laughs> It is it is a parody, okay, um, you know. So we sent him a lawsuit, but then we also posted about it, and we told him, good job. <laughs> uh, there was another West Side article um, from Jim Wendler Ooh. of 531 fame, but nice. this was back in his conjugate days. Ooh. At this time, Elite FTS was kind of new. Um, he posted a, quote, force training article. Mm-hmm. At that time, he and Dave Tate were both posting a lot of articles on their you know, experiences at Westside and conjugate training. They were running seminars. Sure. Um, now Jim Wendler wouldn't be caught dead doing max effort, dynamic effort work. Yep. You know, he's just talking about being north of Vag and, you know, <laughs> uh, drink a gallon of milk and hopefully you're not lactose intolerant. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting to see that. Yeah. We have the... People top- of all, Eric. <laughs> yeah, he did. And, uh, yeah, he has different goals now, and I get it. Yep. Um, it's just interesting that he was like... As much into West Side as anybody, mm-hmm. and now he's basically the opposite of West Side. East Side. Yeah, he's East Side, definitely. Uh, we have the top 100. We, we're, we're switching it up, Bane. We've got the top 100 275s. <gasps> My fellow fat boys. Yay. From April 2004 to April 2005. Fat boy summer. Mark Bartley of Spud Inc. fame is nice. number one in the squat with a 1,057 squat. Wow. My uh, Franz teammate... Jose Garcia with a thousand eight squat was number two on this list. Nice. Andy Andy Fiedler, top on the bench, eight twenty six. Bill Crawford of uh, Metal Militia fame, number two at eight fifteen. Um, Jail Holdsworth, another notable guy, is on here with a seven twenty seven bench. He's got his own uh, training facility out in Ohio now. I don't know the top deadlifter K. Who cares about the deadlift anyway? Kay Gutledge? I don't know him, but he's got an 830 deadlift. This is a made-up name. And <laughs> Mark Bartley, again, top on the total, 2463. Wow. Jail Holdsworth, number two, 2436. John Stafford, um, number three, 2436. So those are basically the same. Mm-hmm. And then again, my friend's teammate, Jose Garcia, 2414, number four. Wow. 
So, oh, Jim's Jim Grandick. He's probably got some other lifts on here as well. But um, our Nebraska Iowa State chair, mm -hmm. he had. I mean, at one point he said he had hit a thousand pound squat in a meet in consecutive years for like ten or twelve years straight Jesus. until he had a, a a knee injury. But he is on here, um, number nine twenty two eighty one. Um, as I'm looking through here, another Franz teammate, Jason Patrick, 2358. Looks like he's number six. So in the top 10 totals, mm -hmm. 275, you've got two Franz guys. And they're, oh, Noel, Lava gosh, another one, 2292, Noel Lavario, number seven. Wow. So in the top 10, 275s, you've got three Franz lifters. Look at that. Go, fat boys. <laughs> Jose Garcia, I think, probably did his best lifting at 242, mm -hmm. um, just based on body composition and, you know, his coefficient and that kind of thing. But, right. you know, strong either one. And those were in his, you know, his big WPO days. Nice. Nice. So let's, uh, let's go on to our kind of topic at hand today, Bane. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know that this is like as applicable to powerlifting as some of our other topics, but it's something that you and I both have, you know, you more than me, but I also have personal experience with. Oh, yeah. And that is you know, autism or autism spectrum disorder mm -hmm. and my experience on how it can relate to powerlifting. And you can kind of talk on that a little bit as well. Um, so I wanted to kind of start with, you know, just getting some, some kind of definitions out. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, Bain sent this to me. It's right from the National Institute of Health website. Quote, autism spectrum disorder is a developmental disorder that affects communication and behavior. People with ASD have difficulty with communication and interaction with other people, restricted interests and repetitive behaviors, symptoms that hurt the person's ability to function properly in school, work, and other areas of life. And that has been updated. It is now, instead of that hurt, it, is, it impacts the person's ability because that hurt piece was, uh, wasn't taken very well. But it has, sure. it has been updated now to that impacts the person's ability. Sure. This was just what on the website. Yep. So, yeah, they, yep. they've plausibly updated it. But uh, And continuing, autism is known as a, quote, spectrum disorder because there is a wide variation in the type and severity of symptoms people experience. That's a weird way to put that. Um, but I, mean, that, I would describe that as, yeah, there is a spectrum, meaning there is oh, yeah. a, there's a wide variability and I think what many people, many people's perception of autism is maybe kind of like either, there's two things I think that come to mind. It's either the completely nonverbal mm -hmm. individuals, or it's like people think of like Rain Man, yep. where they're, you know, the savant that, you know, mutters things to themselves. Yeah, and they have like the tics or, you know, something like that, and the, the trigger points. Sure, and not that there aren't maybe individuals sort of like that, but yep. there is a there's a wide spectrum, um, and, and this is interesting to me because you know again we've talked about this pain. I don't diagnose anybody because I'm not a I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. Yep. I'm just at at best a strength coach. Um, but I look back in my life and think about individuals I'd interacted with, and I think, well, I'm not going to say that they were on the spectrum. But I could say that I'm not, not going to say it. <laughs> I'm going to say that there's the plausibility that things that maybe I thought were, you know, odd behaviors or things I didn't quite understand the way that they interacted with others, it's plausible they perhaps were on the spectrum. And you know, I've said that to other people that said, "Hey, 
there was probably a kid that you knew in school that was kind of odd and yep. kept himself a little bit. It's plausible that they were on the spectrum and that you just didn't know it. And your perception of what is, quote, autistic is, you know, it, it, it's different than what the reality is. I, I am inclined to agree for sure. Uh, yeah, it's, it, and I'll, I'll get into this too as we kind of talk about our experience with it. Uh, you know, there, there was a, especially when you and I were growing up because we, we aren't too far apart in age and, and it, there was not a lot of education on this. I don't even know before I went to college if I really had even heard the word autism, maybe a little bit. And, yeah. it, and it, if I had, the perception would have been like the nonverbal individuals. Yeah. Like the, I, I distinctly remember, because I, I would volunteer with some of the uh, special needs kids at my middle school and high school. And the, the, those that were on the spectrum, they were just called the, the autistics. Again, very un-PC, it, it, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, still a lot of learning going on. Uh, they had to be. They had to work with specially trained individuals. Like the, the volunteers could not work with them. Uh, sure, that is, that is different now. But that that was kind of how that was. But that was the only only thing I knew was like it was what the individuals that we had in that group. Uh, they were severe enough on the spectrum that I could not work with them. That was really my only introduction to sure. autism. And you know, we're going to talk a lot of here is I'm, I'm trying to read from the website so that I can get accurate information out there so that people understand what we're talking about. But some of this is going to be our perception, our opinion. We're we're going to post the link for this as well. I think in the, at least in the body of the, uh, but as far as like just our perception, our perception, Bane, Mm -hmm. my perception is that, you know, it's been more in the mainstream in the last, especially 10, 15 years. And it seems like there's been more people diagnosed, uh, with autism is your perception, Bane, that there are more individuals on the spectrum or is just the definition and the definition been expanded, A, and B, there have been better diagnoses and that has led to the increased numbers? Yes, all the above. And I, I feel that with the increased focus on just mental health in general and you know, some people may say that there is a softness now to the way we educate. Um, there was a, a lot more, I would say, uh, ab- abrasiveness in education. Uh, even back again when you you and I were uh, coming of age and previous generations, now we are taking these quote-unquote problem children that many times would just be hidden away, and now we're looking at how can... you know, or, a lot of, or lost in the numbers. Correct. How can we engage with these individuals? Because I think this this concept that really I think is per, has grown so much uh, over the last probably twenty years is not just about uh, autism and those on the spectrum, but it's that every individual has value somewhere. And I think so that kind of movement has now pushed a lot of people into uh, getting diagnoses, getting services, and. Sure, and it's about understanding. Correct, and and this is long. So you have the research, you've got the the expansion of the definition and the spectrum, and and honestly, just a, an acceptance of like people are unique, and that uniqueness is not bad. Sure. So all, I think all those things kind of come together to grow this number of people exponentially that have been diagnosed on the spectrum. Sure, but I get the question: Do you think there's actually more people on the spectrum now versus fifty years ago? I don't know that there is. I think it's probably very similar from a percentage base, but the the awareness of it is so much right. higher. There's, yeah, there's increased diagnosis because the definition has been expanded, mm-hmm. and there was, I don't think, 
again, correct me if I'm wrong, Bane. I don't think the term Asperger's syndrome is yours used anymore. Not um, nowhere near as much. Yeah, and that's that was kind of quote unquote the higher functioning individuals who now are just diagnosed as you know on the spectrum. Yep. Um, but they don't necessarily use that term. So that was used in the past, and those ident- those individuals are identified as being on the autism spectrum. Correct. For instance. So let me just read from, you know, again, from the uh, NIH website, um, just again, so we can get a concept of what we're talking about. And, uh, you know, I often talk with clients here mm-hmm. um, about some of the, the children and adults I work with on the spectrum. And just because I think there's a lack of just understanding. So signs and symptoms of autism. And these are social communication and interaction behaviors, which may include making little or inconsistent eye contact, tending not to look at or listen to people, rarely sharing enjoyment of objects or activities by pointing or showing things to others, failing to or being slow to respond to someone calling their name or other verbal attempts to gain attention, having difficulty with back and forth of conversation, often talking at length about a favorite subject without noticing that others are not interested or without (laughs) giving others a chance to respond, having facial expressions, movements, and gestures that do not match what is being said, having an unusual tone of voice that may sound sing-song or flat and robot-like, having trouble understanding another person's point of view or being unable to predict or understand other people's reactions. Mm -hmm. And at least, I'm not going to say this is what it is, but a lot of these say to me that there is at least the perception that these individuals have a lack of empathy. I'm not going to say they do have a lack of empathy, but that was maybe what they project through some of these uh, behaviors and social interactions. Are those all things that, you know, in your experience, Mm -hmm. not, and again, these are not, this is not like a, like a list of like, you must check off all these boxes. No, no, It's like, you know, there, there's, these are examples of, Things that you'll see. Things that you'll see in individuals, and you'll see varying amounts of each. Correct. So uh, Correct. I'll, I'll continue with, you know, kind of the restrictive or repetitive behaviors. Mm-hmm. And these, again, are things that can include repeating certain behaviors or having unusual behaviors. For example, repeating words or phrases. Having lasting, intense interest in certain topics such as numbers, details, or facts. Mm-hmm. Having overly focused interests such as moving objects or parts of objects, getting upset by slight changes in routine, being more or less sensitive than other people to sensory input such as light noise, clothing or temperature. And, you know, this is one thing that it's not necessarily obsessive compulsive disorder, but there, you know, maybe shorthand OCD like tendencies, you know, with you know, kind of routine and ritual that you see a lot with these individuals. Um, It it talks about that uh, individuals with this autism may experience sleep problems. This is a huge one with some of the clients I've worked with. Um, And then there's the positive end. This is kind of like, you know, quote unquote, the rain man, you know, savant where, which is may or may not be true. But again, these may be strengths where they may be able to learn things in detail or remember information for long periods of time being strong visual and auditory learners, excelling in math, science, music, or art. So those are just some things. Again, those are not true of every individual on the spectrum, but Mm -hmm. uh, if you've known anybody on the spectrum, um, I guarantee that there's at least a number of those items that ring true. 
Oh yes, it very much so. Um, I obviously giggled at a couple of those because I've experienced them firsthand. So, and I don't, I didn't see this in here. Maybe this is just what someone else has said to me, or it's my perception. You know, I said to you, Bain, is it fair to call this a sensory processing disorder? And that's kind of how I've described it to people mm-hmm. in that individuals on the spectrum see the world differently, mm-hmm. they interact with the world differently, and it's almost as though they are in a different world, and the individuals that especially are nonverbal, it is because they don't have the ability to interact with the world in the way that they want to or that makes sense to someone else. Correct. And so let's, you know, it's not really a cat out of the bag, so... For those who don't know that listen to our show, um, you know, my son is on the spectrum and, oh man, this one's going to be hard. <laughs> this is an emotional thing for me because I want to be very transparent with those who listen. So if, you know, you hear my voice crack or anything like that, like this is, um, it's it's always been something that is, I don't say touchy, but just it's emotional for, for my wife and I when we talk about it. Simply because, you know, we know our son we know, you know, what a beautiful person he is, and but and, you know, he. Austin does perceive the world differently. Uh, he actually probably described it to me the best, you know. So, so his official diagnosis is pervasive development disorder, and okay, where that really falls on the spectrum is he he does not read cues in conversation and in context. He's if you ever meet my son Austin, he has the biggest heart. He's a wonderful, just a, the nicest person you've ever met. Um and he is how old? He is sixteen. Okay. So and we're gonna get into this, but imagine sixteen years ago what the you know education level and understanding of autism is. I mean, even now there's mm-hmm. most people I talk to don't really have a, a strong perception of what autism is and no. you know subtract sixteen years from that. Correct. And 16 years of research and, you know, breakthroughs and a lot of really big things. Uh, so the way Austin has described it to me is when he, when he walks down the street or through the mall or he's talking to people, if you've ever seen people that have uh, on TV that have their faces blurred for protection, like identity protection, that's how he perceives people's faces. They're just essentially grayed. He doesn't read everything that's going on. He knows you have a, a nose, a mouth, a face. And, and I, but like, he doesn't read the subtleties of that. He doesn't read the intonation in your voice. He doesn't read body language. Like, none of that that we would, you know, perceive as uh, part of communication. Austin doesn't get that. And I don't know where I got this stat from, but I've heard that nonverbal is 70% of communication for, for many individuals or most individuals. And so that is, and I'll get into this a little bit, but that is one of the things that is has been a hindrance for Austin is because he... Uh, can't always interact with his peers in a way that's meaningful. And he also, you know, and this is one of the things from my wife and I perspective that is terrifying to us is at some point, you know, could someone take advantage of that? We'll get into a lot of this more as we go through. But so I wanted to kind of set the tone for that, you know, it, it is most definitely a a processing disorder. And just, again, the way that they perceive their, the world they live in, the world we live in is just different. Sure. And... and- I think we all perceive and interact with the world differently to some degree, mm-hmm. but the variation with individual on the spectrum is much greater than the average individual in Correct. the way that they, you know, uh, interact and perceive the world. Yeah. Like he, um, generally speaking, I would say most on the spectrum would, 
score very, very low on like a wonder like test because that's their ability to take in information and process it. Okay. Uh, but then all, on a lot of times you have like an IQ test and you look at the standardization of testing, they're gonna, many times they're going to be very, very high. Now, and, here, here's an interesting question, which I don't have the answer to, Bane. Maybe you do. I've often been asked, is there a direct correlation between autism and any sort of cognitive delay, mental retardation? And my answer has been, I'll let you answer next, but my answer has been, I don't know. It, it often can be the case with individuals, especially those, quote, lower on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. My perception has been that because they haven't been able to get the sensory input that they needed at the young age, and if you know anything about you know, development of toddlers and you know, young infants, is that the zero to three age is super, super important for development. Mm-hmm. And for instance, we have a client here who is a teacher of deaf students, and many of them have a cognitive delay, mental retardation, not because they were born with a brain disorder or born with Down syndrome, but because they didn't get the sensory input at the young age because that deafness was not diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And so is it plausible, Bain, that because individuals on the spectrum interact with the world differently, that their, you know, delay in their cognition, their plausible mental retardation is just interrelated with their inability at that young age to receive the input that we all need to develop at a young age. There is, from what I can tell, correlation but not causation, one of my favorite lines in the Matrix. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, there, there more than likely is a connection there. I, I have not read enough research to understand what that would be, but I say there, there is plausibility to that for sure. Because yeah. you, you, as you develop and the brain is taking in all this information and processing it, it when there is some way, so, some blockage, some barrier to taking in that information or process, and or processing it, there is going to be uh, a drop-off in development. Yeah, and that's why if you've had children, you know that like now it's like the day after your child is born, they're immediately doing a hearing test. Mm-hmm. Um, my client teaches at a high school that has students that, you know, perhaps have immigrated here from, say, Mexico, where, A, they don't always necessarily have schooling for those that are deaf, and B, they don't have necessarily the same type of screening they have here. So Mm -hmm. she has kids that theoretically don't necessarily have a brain dysfunction. They don't have a disorder like Down syndrome, but they are mentally retarded in their development Mm -hmm. because from zero to five, they basically didn't hear anything and they didn't get anything from their parents or their surroundings. And if you don't get anything from your parents or your surroundings or, you know, the and, world. And, and, and understand that using the word retarded is simply a developmental delay. It's not a derogatory right. by any stretch. Yeah, I'm not trying to use it as derogatory. That's, yeah. a, that's, that's really a technical term. Yep. And for a while, uh, the school system went away from using the term mentally retarded and they used MR mm-hmm. or they used cognitive delay. Yep. They've kind of gone back to using mentally retarded mm-hmm. because the parents didn't really understand what they were saying. And right. yeah, I, I, I work with a lot of special needs individuals for many years. So mm-hmm. uh, bear in mind, I'm not using that as a derogatory term, just as a technical term that right. you know, their, their development was slowed from the norm. Right. I just want to make sure we get that out there right yeah, away. So. Yeah, no, I'm not using it as a, as a pejorative. Exactly. So going back to your son, mm-hmm. uh, walk us through, Bane, you know, when you found out when this was diagnosed. Sure. So 
you know, you go through the whole process of you, you get your kids to school, they uh, begin the process of, you know, doing things a little bit on their own. When Austin was in kindergarten, a uh, teacher came to us, and, and again, I, I they came to us early and were doing this in a manner to get Austin the services that he would eventually need. However, it is a, I would say, a punch to the gut as a parent when you are told that your child is special needs or potentially is a special needs child. It is a terrifying thing. At that point, I was 26 years old. My wife was 25. We're barely making ends meet, and now we're hearing that there is, and, you know, also just as a sense of pride, that there is, quote-unquote, something wrong with your child. Again, this is due to a lack of education on my part, uh, poor messaging on the part of the school system. I don't blame them because, again, their heart was in the right place. So we're told on a phone call that, hey, and it was a voicemail that, I, that our son was more than likely special needs. We started the process of getting Austin tested, and that went through the school systems. It went through the University of Iowa, who were just amazing. Um, their, their children's hospital systems is absolutely first class. Most folks know of University of Iowa Children's Hospitals because of the wave that's done at uh, Iowa football games, but the entirety of their child services is just amazing and the people were so great and, and they walked us through everything and I mean, a battery of tests we were going to iowa city uh, uh, you know once a month for almost a year and okay and they came out of this with with this diagnosis and that then qualified austin for various services through the school systems and what is that diagnosis again pervasive development disorder pdd okay and yeah, I've, I've definitely heard that before yeah so so again, it, it was it was a terrifying thing. We were so scared, and yeah, again, you go back 16 years ago, and autism again, yeah. most people's perception of, and even now, many people's perception of autism is that the child is mentally retarded, mm-hmm. nonverbal, and will have to be institutionalized. It, yeah, and that's that. All of those things are plausible, and, and all these, but things, not necessarily right. All these things we extrapolated out. Like, my gosh, what's going to happen with him? Is he going to be going to a special classroom? Is he going to be ostracized by his peers? Sure, is. The other thing my wife and I talked about is, does Austin have to live with us forever? Yeah, and, and I'll tell you what, for those that um, have children that you know, are nonverbal and really struggle in school with social interaction, that is a huge weight on parents' minds that I've worked with through the years is, you know, am I going to have to be taking care of this child who will become an adult for the rest of my life? And then when I inevitably likely die before they do, Who's going to take care of my son? What then? Yeah. And that, that's a huge... Again, we're, this, we're, we're going to relate it back to powerlifting. We, we are. <laughs> we are, trust me. But, you know, just as a societal issue, like the medical science has advanced such that many individuals with disabilities and individuals on the spectrum and special needs individuals in general can live longer. But, mm-hmm. you know, now you've got... There's a ripple all, effect. Right. Now you've got all these individuals that are living longer, but, you know... What are those individuals going to do when they're outside of the school system? Because sure, they're going to go to school if they qualify until they're 21 in Illinois. Mm-hmm. But then what? Yeah. So, and, so, Bain, did you have a thought? Compare. And Austin is here, oldest, youngest, he, middle. He is our oldest. Okay, so you didn't necessarily have a frame of reference at that age. No. 
Uh, and how much difference is there between him and is your next Lily? This is Lily, correct. So how much difference in age is there? Uh, it's about two and a half years. So Lily is uh, actually just a little over two years. Lily's 14, Austin's 16. You know, he's born in September. She's in November. So um, so you didn't necessarily have a frame of reference on the development no. of an infant and a baby no. going into kindergarten. So no. my, my question was going to be, you know, how did he compare to your other kids? But maybe now looking back. Austin. In, in looking back, was there things that now, knowing what you know now, that you're like, oh, you know, that could have been a sign of what was to come? Because now they diagnose children on the spectrum sometimes at 18 months. Looking back now, 100%. His ability to, and this is where we talked about some of the strengths is, you know, the savantism. Austin's ability to memorize things. And, I mean, he has a complete photographic memory. It's beautiful and breathtaking to watch. Looking back now and his ability to memorize songs, facts, <clears throat> different things, from the age of about three, knowing what I know now, we were seeing those signs. We just didn't know what we were looking at. So you have four children, Bane. Gosh, you got a lot of children. Yeah, we do. <laughs> That's how, something I was good at. What can I say? How did or how has his diagnosis affect, affected his siblings? So the, it's been interesting with watching Austin with his siblings because he's he's not the typical oldest child. The normally, especially if you have a son as the oldest, they eventually kind of become that alpha uh, in a sense because they are the oldest. They go through things first. Austin has been a little different, and you know his siblings have been uh, just wonderful with him. He has a great relationship with his younger sister Lily, and obviously with our youngest son Nolan. And then you know him and Ella have a really interesting relationship because there is such a big difference. You know she's in fourth grade, he's a sophomore in high school, and so th- there's a, a great interaction with them. But the biggest thing is that they are they are all very protective of Austin. They know he is different. Sure. And, and especially Lily is incredibly protective of him. And again, they're only two years apart. So he's 16, right. she's 14. Right. And, you know, they, they go through a lot of things. They know a lot of the same people. They have a, a, a similar peer group. And so they... Uh, and that's typical for siblings to be protective, especially, right. you know, those of close in age. And mm-hmm. usually it would be the, the converse is that the, the older sibling would be protective, especially a male of a female. Yes. And, but Lily just, uh, she's very protective of her older brother, and, and we all are. But I, I think that, generally speaking, my kids are, are fairly normalized to him at this point. Uh, just we all know Austin has, yeah, as we talked about with some of the things that may present with those on the spectrum, he has his ways, he has his routine, and, and he doesn't deviate from that very often. And his siblings kind of know that. Sure. What's been the biggest struggle? You know, having four children, first of all, Dane, <laughs> and then one Finances. on and then one on the spectrum. And, you know, for those of you that don't know, if you have a child on the spectrum, there's there's a lot of things that might come into extra cost depending on insurance and yep. depending on how much your insurance covers. There's a lot of therapies that kids often will go through um, to try to not change everything, but to try to allow them to some normalcy improve the manner in which they interact with the world so yeah they can normalize with much of the rest of the population yeah so for us the biggest struggle has just well let me, let me back up for him the struggle has been minimal other than just connecting with his peers past a service level uh he you talk to austin and he has four friends he can list them all off. He can tell you how long he's known them, you know, what the relationship is. You talk to them. One of them, uh, Brandon, also is on the spectrum. 
Austin and Brandon are totally content to sit, and they've done this for an entire weekend, and they may say three words to each other uh, the entire time. It's actually kind of funny. Uh, the other ones, you know, it's it, they, they've known Austin for the longest, and that's why they're friends. He doesn't necessarily seek out other people. And do they all have a sense that he's on the spectrum or has a diagnosis? They, they all yes. know. Okay. Yep, they all know. And it's not something that's necessarily secret with, not that Austin's coming out and telling everybody no. per se, but it's... It's apparent to those that know him. Yes, once you've met him and talked to him for a little while, it's like he's there's Austin's unique. Sure. And for us as parents, and and this is one of the tougher things for me to even talk about, it's allowing Austin the independence and freedom to go out on his own. The scariest thing for me is knowing what a big heart Austin has and knowing that he struggles to connect these different nonverbal things or even just to perceive that someone may be lying to him uh, and that someone at some point may take advantage of that. That is just, it, it is, it is a scary, scary thing. And so that's for us been the biggest struggle. Um, but at some point, Austin will be on his own. He probably will not have to live with us. He will live near us for the rest of his life. Sure. And you know, the last thing I want is for my wife and I to get a call at three in the morning and somehow Austin has been like swindled and he has no money and he doesn't understand why. It was, uh, to paint a picture of this, Austin left his wallet at the Buffalo Wild Wings in Mount Prospect once. And I called over there and I said, hey, here I described it for them. And they called me back an hour later. I said, yeah, we found it. Awesome. Yay. And Austin had $50 in there. Someone took the money and turned it in the wallet. Explaining to my son why someone would do that to him. Because he took it as a personal shot. <sighs> Told you this is hard, man. <laughs> yeah, no. Take your time, babe. Um, I get it. Explaining to him why someone would do that, it just it broke my heart. It tore me up. Because he can't, he, to this day, does not understand why. And right. we had great friends. I, I, I did post something about it because I needed this event. We had great friends that came together and... And actually pulled some money so that Austin could, um, you know, get that money back. And actually, it was way more than that. I'm forever thankful for the group of friends that we have. Um, but that's been the biggest struggle: is you know, ha- when something goes sideways, ha- having to wa- walk Austin through that. Um, I always thought that school would be the biggest struggle. I'll be, it, my son is gets 45 minutes of uh, services per week. And he's an honor roll stu- student. Um, he will finish this year. You know, obviously we're we're fairly early in the year, but um, he hasn't had anything less than three point six since he was uh, in eighth grade. And so he's more like your wife, is what you're saying? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he is he is very intelligent, and uh, we we are incredibly thankful for the school systems we've been a part of because they have provided you know great IEPs. Tremendous resources. IEP for those of you who don't know is an individualized yep. education. <laughs> I was plan. getting there. <laughs> I just I know I'll, I actually have a degree in teaching as as you do as well. Babe. I do, uh, even though none of us are teacher. Neither yeah. of us are teachers. Well, you train like there's teaching that goes on. Sure, uh, but I'm not in the school system, so there's a lot of acronyms in teaching. Yes, it's like um, the military, <laughs> right? And you know the the analogy that I've been told before, Bain, is like you know in poke and poker. You're playing poker. Yep. Sometimes people have a tell. Yep. And you know, you can you can tell that oh they're they're bluffing. Yep. Versus, you know, someone on the spectrum 
you could be blatant. Yeah. They still wouldn't understand your tell. Exactly. hundred percent. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of the biggest struggle for us. Uh, I, I do want to get this towards the point where we're talking about how this relates to lifting and, and strength and all that. I, I do just want to say this, that as a parent of someone on the spectrum, you know, there's nothing wrong with Austin. You, you've met my oldest son. Like he's, I have, he's a, he's a sweet kid. He's nice. He's polite. Uh, and nor is there anything wrong with anyone else on the spectrum. And, and I would say to actually know someone who is on the spectrum, I think for to me it, it represents kind of the purest form of hu- of human interaction where like it, there's no second agenda. It's just they there is a to me the purest love of a person is with people on the spectrum, and and that is what I love so much about Austin is his heart is as big as anybody you will ever meet. And all he wants is for people around him to be happy. He has also forced my wife and I to become like we we always prayed for patience as parents. <laughs> sure. And what we got was an opportunity to be patient because sure. we had this individual who we needed to learn how to very effectively communicate with. And um, it as scary as it was, and it was it was so scary uh, for us. What an amazing blessing it's been to have Austin in our family and. Uh, for us and his siblings and everybody that comes in contact with our family because he is just he is just a wonderful wonderful human okay uh, and that's that's my that's my experience with with the spectrum uh I, more than that you know here in the powerlifting world I, i've met people and we're gonna get to that here in a second but uh obviously very very personal uh that we've had to uh to work through that and um I will tell anybody that if you know somebody on the spectrum, try to get to know them if they'll allow you to. Because that's another thing, too, is they may not allow you to get to know them. Right. So, and I don't know if I've asked you this, Bane, but usually individuals on the spectrum, we talked about this, have like one like one or two like really precise and like intense hobbies or interests. Mm-hmm. Your son, Austin? Austin's is uh, movies and Legos. Okay. If you... Types this, of movies? This or? is a fun game that we play with Austin. Um, and he, he likes to do it. He, he will show off for people. It, it basically, you go down the rabbit hole of movies and actors. You can start with a specific movie. He can tell you who starred in it, when it came out, when it came out to home media. He can tell you other movies these people have starred in together and or other movies that these individuals have starred in. It's amazing to watch him do this. And the, the idea that he can walk through the entire Marvel, DreamWorks, um, Fox, uh, their entire library and tell you when movies came out, who directed them, when they came to home media, when they were recent to home media, when sequels were planned, when sequels got uh, shut down. It's un- unreal watching him uh, do that. And and then he, he loves his Legos. That's, you know, he, he really enjoys the, the dexterity with that. Uh, that's, that's his thing. Okay. So, I didn't ask you that, so that's interesting. Yeah. That's my boy. Yep. So I don't have nearly the personal experience you have, Bane, um, but I have some experience with individuals on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it started a little bit. Uh, I did a bunch of observations. For those of you who don't know, if you're a teacher, you have to do a certain number of hours in college just literally going to classes and observing. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent basically an entire semester going once a week to a self-contained special education class. Um, and that was really more the norm when we were in school that if kids were special ed, they were mostly self-contained versus the big term when I was in college was inclusion, yes. uh, which I think is, is good, uh, although there are times when you know, there's maybe a happy medium between there 
um, a discussion for another time, but yeah. uh, I started working for Right Fit, um, a company in Willowbrook, and now I believe they have a spot in LaGrange as well, mm-hmm. back in 07 part-time, and I became full-time in 2010. And at that time, Right Fit was a kind of like a boutique personal training would be the best way of describing their company. And one of their specializations was working with children with special needs, some adults, and they did a lot of work with individuals on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And it kind of came out of the fact that my ex-boss, Suzanne Gray, uh, her original facility was in Burridge, and it was in the same warehouse complex as a school for individuals on the spectrum, Giant Steps. That was their first location. Okay. Very small. And she had the the teachers and some of the parents come to her and say, hey, you know, would you be willing to personal train my child that's on the spectrum? And Suzanne is the type of person that would be willing to never turn away business mm. and was like, sure, yeah. I mean, she didn't know anything about it at the time, but she was like, sure, you know, we'll... We'll she, figure it out. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure it out. She had experience teaching PE, so like me, she had a, a degree you know, in teaching, so she mm-hmm. had experience working with kids, and that kind of became one of their niches. And there is a big community of parents with children on the spectrum, especially in Naperville. Mm-hmm. So in the western suburbs, there are a lot of kids on the spectrum. Yes. And RightFit was able to carve out a niche working with individuals, some adults, mostly children, mm-hmm. on the spectrum, um, I came from working at a place where I did almost solely youth sports performance training. So mm-hmm. I did a lot of athletes, you know, a lot of football players, volleyball players. Athletes. Yeah, baseball players. Yeah. And I started working part-time for Right Fit because they uh, rented space out of the building uh, of Velocity at the time. And that's all I did was adult personal training. When I started working with them full-time, I did the same type of adult personal training and uh, small small group athlete training, mm-hmm. the same type of stuff. You know, I just stuck around so long, and in the training world, there's a decent turnover of trainers. That's just a nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. And just being around long enough, I eventually started inheriting some of the uh, private clients, one-on-one clients that were special needs, and many of those that were on the spectrum. Um, I did help oversee some of the classes small group classes they had. Um, by the end of my reign at RightFit, I was being given the, quote, hardest clients to train that were on the spectrum. There's stories here. I, I mean, we could probably do a whole podcast on stories of mine at RightFit. Yeah. Um, but I, a client I still work with to, th- to this day, Nick, mm-hmm. who is six feet tall, 300 pounds. It's a unit. And he's a, he's a big, strong man. He's not a kid anymore. Yeah. Uh, he started attacking some of the other trainers because they just, he will occasionally pinch and pull hair if mm-hmm. he gets angry, mm-hmm. even to his parents at times. And uh, he was attacking one of the trainers Jeez. when we had our Team Stone squat session on a Sunday. And I and another one of our teammates had to go over and kind of calm him down. Sure. And at that time, uh, that ended that trainer said, I am never working with them again. <laughs> and I think it was because we had another trainer who was a, a supposed expert in autism that couldn't handle him optimally. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, you know what? I will take a run at training him at least until we can find someone that can mm-hmm. handle him. Right. Um, and I think because, not because I had experience with it, but because I have a 
strong-willed personality and because I am at least physically strong enough to uh, not restrain him but hold him back, sure. um, I, I was, I would say, successful in working with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, gosh, at this point, I've been training him back at RightFit through my time at uh, through my time here at 2XL. So probably, you know, seven or eight years we've been working together. And I think we we mesh from a personality perspective. Um, at here at 2XL, we have been promoting our pressing the pieces together, uh, bench press meet mm-hmm. that raises money for the Autism Society. Uh, my business partner, Howard, has previously served on the Autism Society of Illinois board. Mm-hmm. So we both have some you know, passion and experience working with this. Again, I, I've got so many stories of working with some of the kids at RightFit. I would say uh, a lot of the clients we work with there would be quote unquote lower on the spectrum. So those right. that you know definitely struggled more with communication, um, some that were nonverbal. Nick is not nonverbal, but he's not you know completely verbal. I mean, he and I communicate just fine. I know exactly what he's thinking. He understands everything I say to him, whether he wants to acknowledge it or not. <laughs> um, but that also does come from years and years of learning how to communicate with you and him. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, and I have a new client here at at Two XL who is mostly nonverbal. Um, and you know, the young man is here the other night. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And he is mostly nonverbal, but I mean, he can hear just fine, and I think he understands most of what I say. In fact. My perception, Bane, has been that the kids on the spectrum, they're often good fakers, and they fake mm-hmm. like they don't hear what's going on, yep. and they just hear what they want to hear. It's like my granddaddy, who never got a hearing aid, mm-hmm. because he didn't want to hear my grandmother yelling at him, <laughs> and he just heard what he wanted to hear. Yep. Uh, so, But I will say that you know, working with individuals on the spectrum, you do have to use other teaching modalities. You can't just use verbal you know, you need some uh, kinesthetic, and you need some uh, you need some visuals mm-hmm. for them. But it, my experience, man, has been you know personal training, doing some fitness training with you know a lot of varying individuals on the spectrum. Those that are you know both quote high functioning, and those gosh, I had a kid that the first day I worked with him, he bit me in the arm so bad that it drew blood. I had to go get a shot the Jeez. next day. Funny story, I had that wasn't funny, but the next day it was funny because I had Jacob with me, mm-hmm. whom at the time was like one, mm-hmm. and the nurse looked at me with this like just like crazy look. Like, you know, she's like, Did he bite you? I'm like, no, he's one. He didn't bite me. <laughs> like it was like an eight or ten Those gums are razor sharp. Yeah, he hardly had any teeth. And I was like, No, it was a, it was a child at my work. Yeah. Um but I worked with that kid for ten or for a year, not ten years, excuse me. Yeah. I worked with him for a year after that until I left Right Fit. Wow. Um those were quite the sessions. That's a story for another time, Bane. Yeah. I don't even have to told you these, but um, so I, I, I again, I don't consider myself like an expert or anything. I just consider myself someone that has experience mm-hmm. with working with individuals on the spectrum. Right. So, Bane, here is my take on, and this is how we're going to connect all this back to mm-hmm. powerlifting. Uh, Nick, my client here, has competed in our. Uh, bench press meet mm-hmm. for the past at least three years, maybe four years. Mm-hmm. He is the type of individual that really didn't fit well in Special Olympics, mm-hmm. which is uh, often the case with individuals on the spectrum. They just it doesn't fit well with them. Right. And his parents have appreciated the fact that he's been able to participate in a sporting event that he seemingly enjoyed. Um, he's had some success with it. 
Um, he likes, I think he likes coming to the meets. It's, I mean, it's hard to say because, again, the communication is not always 100% clear, but I think he's at least said he wanted to come back. Here's my reasoning why I think uh, powerlifting and lifting weights in general works well with individuals on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the workouts, that the type of workouts you do in powerlifting, they are very regimented and they are consistent. So you usually do the same kinds of lifts often, and there is a, especially the way that I program them, there is a structure and a rigidity to them. Not to the point where you can't deviate, um, but it is something where there is a structure and a method to the way in which I train individuals. Mm-hmm. The lifts themselves are very objective. You lifted X number of pounds. There's no, you know, uh, there's no deviation in what it is. It, it, the weight is the weight. Yep. Um, it's you a, either lifted it or you didn't. Right, exactly. It, it's a physical outlet that is not related to emotion. You know, it's, again, you lifted the weight or you didn't lift the weight. You did it properly or you didn't do it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't necessarily a sport or activity that has as much social interaction like a team sport does. So right. like playing basketball or soccer or other, you know, track and field might be one where, yeah, it, it's more it's more of an individual sport, but maybe even less social interaction, at least, you know, it, you and I have talked, Bate, about mm-hmm. how we believe powerlifting can be, you know, an individual sport often expressed in a team, mm-hmm. but at least, you know, for the individual, it can be very individual. Yes. Um, so those are kind of my reasons why I think powerlifting can fit for individuals on the spectrum and why I think it's a good activity for them and why I think I've had success training individuals on the spectrum and why I think Right Fit and other uh, fitness places have had success with fitness mm-hmm. that is very structured and regimented. Um, they aren't necessarily doing powerlifting there, but they're, they are following a structure and a regimented way of training those individuals um, that has had success. And it provides that physical outlet for them that sometimes they cannot get elsewhere. Correct. And there's, there's also there's a bio-neural response that happens during you know training sessions. We all experience it as well, but it's especially important for these individuals because of the uh, you know sensory issues that go on through the spectrum. Uh, it it incre- does increase some brain function for them, which is incredibly important, and it allows them to, to your point, have an outlet, but also to uh, create better connections because of the physicality that's going on. Yeah, and I think sometimes that you know individuals on the spectrum have difficulty with you know expressing their physicality, like you yes, know, very very much, and so. the ability to push hard against a weight or a sled. Mm-hmm. Or squeeze something really hard, or pull against something really hard. I think there is some therapeutic benefits to that. That, mm-hmm. gosh, if we had a, a million dollar grant bane and a college professor around here, yeah. it would be great to study the effects of. And you don't have to make it powerlifting, but just you know maybe uh, fitness lift, training and strength training, in lifting general. weights, yep. and you know conditioning type exercises for individuals on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know if there's any. Uh, you know, rich financiers out there, college professors that want to throw some money my way, I'm happy to help them with that. Or we could just try to connect with uh, Emma since she does have a doctorate in this. Sure, sure. And see what we could do. So, you know, and I've even had some experience. I'm not going to name them, but I've had uh, a couple, but, you know, maybe one or two specific training partners through the years Mm -hmm. that I don't know have been diagnosed. So, again, I'm not going to diagnose people, but Mm -hmm. my 
strong you know, perception is that they may have been on the spectrum or exhibited some of the characteristics of those on the spectrum. And powerlifting really was their, like, you know, one of their one or two mm-hmm. very intense interests. And, you know, again, because of the objective nature and because of the consistent regimented, uh, you know, nature of the way that I train people, it really fit well with their personality. Yep. And same thing. Like, I, I've had. Again, not officially diagnosed, but I'm fairly certain that there are individuals I've trained with over the years that uh, were on the spectrum. It's interesting because, again, my ex-boss, Suzanne, uh, for a while was doing some powerlifting, and she would occasionally come and train with Team Stone when we were at uh, even Velocity. Gosh, Mm -hmm. even going all the way back then. And um, a couple times she said to me, hey, you know, that that individual that trains with you guys, you know, uh, what's going on with him? Well, he's kind of a weird weird individual. Yep. And she would say, "Well, you know, maybe it's not just that he that he's weird. Maybe there's a little bit more going on there." This person you powerlift, you're weird. That's true. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're all I mean, I'm kind of weird, let's be honest here. Um so strong and angry. <laughs> well, and I've often said, I I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that I think I'm on the spectrum, but I do think that I understand those individuals well. Because I understand if you've been around this gym mm-hmm. and you see the way that I structure the gym and the way I organize plates, uh, you know, it's not like I'm OCD, but I'm not not OCD with the way yeah, that I do exactly. things. Exactly. And I'm certainly got my own rituals and organizational of the way I do things. So I'm not saying I'm the spectrum, but I'm saying I do understand where they're you, coming from. You set things up with a purpose. Like, you do crazy things, like put a carpet next to the chalk box where people would possibly put baby powder on. <laughs> <laughs> Squats fired. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, yeah, put the baby powder right next to the carpet instead of on yes. the carpet. And then put the baby powder in the chalk box. Oh, the my gosh. Please do not do that. And it's funny because uh, one individual who I'm, Again, fairly certain was on the spectrum. I'm not going to diagnose anybody, but, uh, you know, their hands were, like, all cracked mm-hmm. and dry. And I'm like, well, maybe if you didn't wash your hands 15 times a day, your hands wouldn't be cracked and dry. You know, How did you know I did that? Well, I just, I just, <laughs> just, just, a, just a guess. Because I'm watching you through your phone. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> well, because uh, it's one thing that your membership here at Two XL well, gives you access to. Well, because Dr. Pendros, you know, he sits on the uh, on a congressional committee that uh, you know the IOT, <laughs> right? You know, he, that's probably watching you. Yes. So, you know, let, let, let's transition <laughs> out of that, Bane. Um, just some general questions about autism. Yeah. And this is a question for you. It's a question for me. It's a question general. Should we? And is there the possibility of a quote? cure for autism because in my experience in various non-for-profits that relate to autism some people would say yes we should be looking for a cure and there's some organization that have that in their creed Mm -hmm. and there are some that that is very you know controversial because they said we shouldn't be looking for the my child doesn't need to be quote cured Mm -hmm. um your perception on that i agree with the latter uh austin does not need to be cured Austin just needs to be equipped and I'll use him specifically and then just generally speak of the spectrum. He needs to be equipped with the tools to, and the skills to be able to function in the world as a, as a, you know, functioning, profitable, you know, industrious individual in society on the spectrum. 
I don't believe, I, I feel, generally speaking, all on the spectrum need the same thing. Whether you're going to be an individual or you're going to you know, still have to live with parents or loved ones, you need to be equipped with the skills to be the highest functioning individual you can be. Sure. And you've got an individual, uh, a son that you live with who, you know, it seems like you said, eventually is going to be able to be an independent person, maybe with some oversight from you and family members. Yep. Um, you know, there are some that have kids that are quote, and I, I always say quote, because I'm trying not to put a negative connotation on quote, higher function, lower function. I know there's, and maybe you can correct me if there's a better way to put that, but I, I don't want to I don't want to indicate that individuals who are quote lower functioning are bad people. I, I, just, I don't want. I don't want to be negative about them, but you know their interaction with the world is very challenging. I mean, I've worked with kids that are completely nonverbal, that are in special schools, cannot function in the normal public school, mm-hmm. and the parents would tell you that most likely their kids are going to have to either live with them or be in some kind of specialized home or institution for the rest of their life. So there is a wide spectrum and you've got those individuals that, you know, the parents are really, really struggling. I mean, I had a guy that would come in on a Saturday morning, his son barely slept, Mm -hmm. you know, he would go two, three days without sleeping. Him and his wife would alternate who would stay up with him. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we use sleep deprivation at Guantanamo Bay as quote, Coerced interrogation. Anybody who can tell you've had kids, when your kids don't sleep, God, it's hard. Mm-hmm. And can you imagine going that for 13 years with a child mm-hmm. who doesn't sleep and they're 13 years old? So I, I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent there, Bane, but I guess those parents might say, yes, I do want a cure because, I quote, cure because, mm-hmm. gosh, anything to make my son more normal. And I say son because, what is it, 90% of the individuals on the spectrum are male. Not all. But it's true. But <laughs> not all, but but many, if not most. But but again, it's if if I was to talk to that parent and say, "This is first Robert's second opinion coming up here." Sure, sure, yeah. We're, take, we're not we can't, we're not experts here. We're, we're just we've got personal experience. There is not a cure because your child does not have a disease. Sure, your child has a different set of wiring, and, and part of this honestly comes from Austin's interpretation how he explains himself to people. And I would, I would encourage anybody who's interested in learning more, look up Temple Grandin, because she is someone who has, yeah. you know, kind of, quote, come out of, I, I, and that's maybe, her, not, maybe not the right way to say it, but she is someone who was very into her own world and has been able to, later in life, express what it was like mm-hmm. and how it has been like to interact with the world in a different way. Correct. And I think if I was to talk to those parents and say, I understand that your child who is so deep on the spectrum, which and that's just a verbiage that I use. Sure, I like that. With high functioning, low functioning. So deep on the spectrum, and it, it, it causes these rifts and these issues with the family. Because I get it, you don't sleep, or there's lashing out, or whatever. If there's a way to equip them, and so again, they're still going to be them. Sure. But they're going to be them to a higher degree and be able to start interacting with you and the world around them in a way that is simpler. Sure. That, that to me is where we go with it. Because again, these individuals bring so many great things to the world. And I say that knowing that there is a lot of challenges, a lot a of challenges. Oh my gosh. And for everybody who has a child in the spectrum, there's a lot of challenges, whether they're for, for everybody that has a child, <laughs> yeah, a lot no, of that, challenges. That, that fair point, fair point. But the, you're right to, and 
Nick and I have been incredibly blessed. Austin is is not on the deep end sure. of the spectrum. He really is not. And I can only imagine if, if we was what we'd be going through. But at the end of the day, what I don't want is if Austin suddenly uh, was, quote, cured, right. would he, would he and, be the same person? No. And sure. I, I, don't, I don't want that. I, I want the son that I've gotten to know over the last 16 years. But I want to make sure that my son is going to be okay when I'm gone. Sure. Fair. And, and that's whatever tool that's going to be, whatever things that I uh, get for him, that is my, my hope for this. So not necessarily a cure. So but, would it be fair to say that perhaps the best way for research to go would be a way to allow children at a young age that are diagnosed with something on the spectrum mm-hmm. be able to better communicate and interact with the world? And that's not necessarily a cure. Right. That's just, like you said, a tool mm-hmm. through therapy or through whatever it is. I don't know because I'm not smart enough. Yeah. I, I don't know what that is, but, a, a, you know, like the child who's been diagnosed as deaf that's taught sign language, mm-hmm. and now they can communicate. Now they're suddenly unlocked to all right. these different things. And, and their brain can now receive that sensory input that they couldn't get when they, were, when they you know, are not hearing what's going on, be yeah. it sign language or be it a cochlear implant plant or yep. whatever it is. Yep. So, so yeah, so that, that to me is, is where the research should be going, is where... Where can we give tools and give help to these individuals so that they can interact with the world that makes sense to both the to the, mostly them but also to the world? Sure. So they can so communicate, and, and so that they can interact with the world. Yeah. So I, I mean, we have to talk about it, Ben. It's like the eight hundred pound gorilla in in the room. Whenever mm-hmm. we talk about autism, um, there has been a lot of controversy through the years, and I don't want to make a strong statement on it. Maybe you do because you're the one with the child on the spectrum. But there's always been this question of, is there a correlation or causation between vaccines and autism? And any, just any thoughts on that pain? <laughs> no, there's not. And, and for those of you that don't know, um, and I don't want to go into a whole vaccine discussion here because that's a whole other rabbit hole it, we could go tr- down. It truly is. But... The scientist or doctor who supposedly showed the link between autism and vaccines has been widely discredited, and that's Correct. that's not to say there are some, maybe some other issues with vaccines. I don't want to go into that because we're we're getting way off topic then. Correct, but but, but, the, but the relationship between vaccines and autism, at least as far as that doctor goes, has been shown to be largely non-correlative. No, there there is not correlation. There is not causation. The well, there may be correlation in that the signs of autism show up around the same time that individuals get a vaccine. That, that, that's not there's an, that's not yeah. any causation. It's just they happen like they happen to occur sometimes at the same right. time. And, and I'm just I, the the quote unquote evidence is so loose. There's not there there is so minimal to back this. It's it is comical to me. I understand some people like to take this as gospel, like, oh, there's definitely, you know, something in that. But I, I will tell you this. The, uh, the spectrum individuals, the way their brain is wired is so unique to them and versus a quote-unquote non-spectrum person. Right. So how could that change just 
from getting a vaccine, even just logically thinking about it. Correct. If their brain is wired differently, is that a, is that a maybe an apt way to put it, Bane? Would that, you think that is how? And uh, gosh, I love Austin. That is how he explains himself sure. to people, and that uh, this it makes so much sense. He says, "Hey, I'm just wired different." Sure, and that makes a hundred percent sense to me. That yeah, and and it's not like there's uh, nothing quote wrong with his brain. It no. just the manner in which he interacts with the world through his brain and through his sensory, you know, through his five senses and yep. beyond that is, is different. Yep. And and so he, so it doesn't seem like a vaccine could just change the way your brain is wired no, on, a, on a dime. No, not it cannot. So so. Uh, <clears throat> Wrong. Okay, so yeah, we'll <laughs> we'll move on from that because that's a whole Pandora's box of things we could talk about. Yeah, and feel free to at me if anyone wants to argue about it. Sure. Yeah, don't argue with me. Uh, it's at band three sixteen. Yes. Um. So, you know, a couple long term questions, Bane. So the quote higher functioning individuals. Mm-hmm. So maybe an individual like your son, mm-hmm. who you know, if he would like, could probably go to college or some kind of higher education. That's the plan. And you know. What is the best way that we as a society can help them, quote, fit into society? Finding areas that these individuals are able to to operate. I would say like Austin has no desire, nor I would say the the ability to to like lead people. He, he, he doesn't want to do that, and I don't think he'd be very good at it. But if you put him into a role where things are very black and white, like an engineer or like a programmer, these individuals are you know able to, to work in those environments and do very, very well because things are yes, no, black, white. You know, here's your path. Ones and zeros. Right. Here's your path. Go. Versus if you're in a job that requires more social interaction or reading people. Right, more dynamic be, thinking. It's going to be difficult for them. Correct. And, and the, but the biggest thing is that people have to take a step back and recognize, once you recognize that these individuals, whether they, whether they tell you or not, that there is something unique about this person, the biggest thing is to, to let them fit in is you have to be patient. And that sure. is one of the toughest things to do because sometimes individuals on the spectrum, because of the way they interact with the world, it is frustrating as all hell. Sure. And so, you know, high level operating type of roles to, because again, that's going to give them a sense of self-worth. It will allow them to have social interaction, but not in a way that is going to be damaging to both them and the others that are part of that interaction. Sure. I mean, some of the adults that I've known through the years, you know, who've kind of struggled with where to work and their bosses. Mm-hmm. Um, I've often said, like, if I had the ability to hire them, I know that I, I would be able to work with them well. And that's not me putting over myself. Mm-hmm. But just having interaction with individuals on the spectrum for many years, I, I think I would be able to, you know, just like with any employee, mm-hmm. let's, let's be honest. What you want to do with an employee is you want to maximize their, their strengths and mm-hmm. minimize their weaknesses and what role you have them in. Correct. If somebody's great with selling people, yeah, you want to put them in a role when they can sell people. If somebody is great with, you know, technically working with things on their hands, then that's the, that's the type of role that you want them to put in. So yep. it's not that dissimilar as to how we should handle any person in the working world. Yeah. And it's and it's not just the working world. And then you look at just general society. It, yeah, um, I, don't, I don't want to put everything on having a job, but like you said, I do think having a job gives people self-worth, mm-hmm. it gives people a purpose in life, it does. and it allows them to become more independent and not become dependent for the rest of their life. Right. 
And so with that, the next step after that patience piece is then the inclusion. And, and the way I've always kind of been explaining this is diversity is being invited to the dance and inclusion is actually being on the dance floor. And okay. So allowing these folks to kind of be, again, if they want to be a wallflower, that's fine. But allowing them the opportunity, if they want to, you know, quote unquote, step on the dance floor, let them. Sure. And that, that is, we're getting better at that as a society, uh, story on this and again this is about Austin you know his birthday uh, last year um, or 2018 sorry his 15th birthday also happened to be the day of the homecoming dance at his high school we asked him what he wanted to do did he want to do his birthday dinner with his mom he said no I'd like to do that Friday night and I'd like to go to the dance say cool but we'll we'll do that and so we asked him like I, I kind of joking like hey going with anybody he's like no I'm just going with my friends and he borrowed one of my shirts, which was adorable. Uh, it was one from when it was from when I dropped a two eighteen. I was about to say, could he even he'd be swimming in your current shirts? Uh, oh, he was swimming in that one too. It was it was cute. Um, but you know, we made it work. I showed him how to tuck it in and kind of you know take the blousiness out of it. And yeah, so we get to the school, and he says, "Hey, those are my friends." I'm like, "Cool, bud. You know, do you want us to walk you up?" He says, "Sure, that's fine." And as we're walking up, he walks a little bit ahead of us, and these kids turn around. And this is another one I probably get emotional a lot too. And immediately was, Austin, what's going on? And happy birthday. How was your day? And immediately just watching all these, you know, what you would consider normal kids and not on the spectrum, just embrace our son. And we got a quick picture with, you know, me, him, and his mom, and he compliments the girls on their dresses and they look really nice. And then they all just walk in together. And that is on a much grander scale is how these folks get into society is allow them to, this is again, almost a plea, allow them to bless you with their huge hearts. Because generally speaking, these individuals once understood, have some of the biggest hearts you'll ever see. Sure. So, so and then the other end of the spectrum, literally, you yep, know, we've got... Deep end. Individuals that are, you know, like you said, deeper into the spectrum or, mm-hmm. are, quote, lower functioning. Mm-hmm. In Illinois, and I think in many states, uh, they are allowed, I guess would be the word, or the, the schools are required to provide a school environment for them mm-hmm. until they turn 22. Mm-hmm. And we're, we are talking about individuals on the spectrum that are probably nonverbal. Um, this also includes individuals that have physical disabilities, but mm-hmm. that's not really what we're talking. I mean, that that's similar. It's a similar yeah, problem those, here. Those with Down syndrome, those right. everybody. Yeah. It's a similar problem with yeah individuals like that. Mm-hmm. But the question is, as a society, what what do we do with them? Like how how best to handle them? I don't have an answer for this. I don't think you do either, Bane. No. But but you know, doing some and they call it usually they call it the transition center where you've got because the idea is you're trying to transition them to whatever else they're going to do in their life, Mm -hmm. be it go to some kind of day program or be it some kind of, you know, supervised work environment. You know, how can we help individuals with severe disabilities fit into society in some way? And those individuals are probably always going to be somewhat dependent. But how can we enable them to be more independent and to provide some value because I think we all realize that being useful and providing some kind of work that is useful Mm -hmm. 
helps provide value. That shouldn't be the only thing that provides value to your life, I don't think. Right. But I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And what do we do with individuals once they turn 22 until they, you know, pass on mm-hmm. and often will outlive their parents? Mm-hmm. You know, what are we going to do with a huge, I can tell you right now, in the western suburbs of Chicago specifically, there is a bubble. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. like there was the housing bubble. Mm-hmm. There's a bubble of kids that are in the next five years are all going to turn 22 because mm-hmm. I worked with a lot of them at RightFit. They're all going to turn 22. And what are the parents? What is society at, at large? What can be done? What should we do with those individuals? I don't know. It's something that if I was a parent and I had a child that was, quote, lower on the spectrum or had a physical disability, it's something I probably would be up at night worrying about. And I'm kind of up at night worrying about it myself anyways, Mm -hmm. just having seen so many of these individuals. Um, Because, again, the medical science has improved such that we can keep them, you know, like the ones with physical disabilities Mm -hmm. especially, we can keep them alive longer, um, but... What do we do once they're there, out of school? There's there's an idea of quality of life that does need to be considered. And how do we ensure that these individuals are not left behind somehow or just lost? You know, there's uh, there's some research that shows that there are a certain, you know, the, the Army has done some research that, okay, someone has to have at least a, a, a median level of IQ in order to be able to do enough work for us that they produce more than they consume. Mm-hmm. They, do, they do more work than it requires work to supervise them. Right. And there are a certain level of individuals that are slightly below that yes. that aren't necessarily mentally retarded, but maybe have a you know, slightly lower than average IQ. Mm-hmm. And the question is, with them, with individuals that maybe even have, again, as a technical term, mental, some type of mental retardation, you know, cognitive delay, um, they will require more supervision to work than they will be able to produce. Mm-hmm. And how do we handle those individuals? How do we provide them some type of worth in their life, some type of way that they can, you know, have some independence and feel like they're contributing to society? It's a big question. <laughs> right. It's I, a, I, I don't have an answer for that one yet. So I know we're getting a little bit esoteric here, yep. but... I think it's relevant when we talk about this subject. Yeah. Um, we could go off on many other tangents, Spain, but any... Yeah, I don't feel like crying anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> but anything else to add from what we've talked about? Um, I would just encourage anybody that wants to know more about this is to you know do a little bit of research and beyond mm-hmm. this episode. There's many resources out there. Tons. You know, National Institute of Health. There's plenty of YouTube videos out there. <laughs> Temple Grandin... Uh, I think she has a movie that I've seen at least yep. most of a part of that you yep. could watch. That's that's very good. Um, but if you're if you're interested in learning more, go out and find a little bit more information. Uh, but I think we've touched on it. You know, some personal experience, and then our experience of how this could relate back to power. If you have a, a child or adult in the spectrum that you think could use a physical outlet, you know, not to plug two XL, but you know, find somewhere that yeah. is willing to work with. I've talked with, uh, having posted things about what we do here at previously at RightFit and what we've done at 2XL, I've had trainers from other gyms reach out to me. We've corresponded about Mm -hmm. how they, yeah, they do have a client that's special needs around the spectrum and, you know, kind of ask my advice or ask what I've done or what we've done. You know, find a trainer that has uh, an open 
an open mind to working with someone mm-hmm. different than their average client. Like my, my boss, to give my boss Suzanne a lot of credit, she didn't have a lot of experience with it, but she had an open mind mm-hmm. that she was willing to learn and willing to work with individuals of the spectrum. Yeah, it, and, and definitely, uh, you know, again, shameless plug, check out the Press the Pieces Together for Autism meet that, you know, 2SL has coming up in, uh, in April. It's, it's, this is one of the coolest things that you guys do uh, here. Uh, and, and when I first heard about this, I was very, very excited that this was a meet and, and why you guys are doing it. That whether, whether you compete at it or not, supporting this one is, to me, a huge thing. Because there is so much that needs to be done to get these individuals ready for the next changes of their lives. Um, and the only way to do that is through additional research and, and funding, obviously. Yeah, I mean, uh, on April 25th, we have our Pressing the Pieces Together mm-hmm. Bench Press Benefit for Autism. And we raise money for the Autism Society of America, which mm-hmm. is an organization you know, we believe in. Howard Pendros knows the now retiring CEO who's mm-hmm. a, who is a local guy. And yeah, I mean, we, we just talked about like, what do we do with individuals once mm-hmm. they turn 22? How do we better integrate, you know, individuals into society? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Bain doesn't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody does. But the only way to do that, like you said, is to research it and to provide some resources. Yep. And the only way to get resources is cash to yep. some degree. I mean, uh, money talks. You need cash to do research. You need cash to provide resources for families that you know, struggle. And something we didn't really talk about, Bain, was I, I used to train a, a divorce lawyer. And in his experience, autism is the kiss of death for marriages. And his, you know, his, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? His prediction or, you know, thoughts from his, what he's seen is that, mm-hmm. you know, it's likely that 75% of marriages with children with uh, a child on the spectrum end divorce. Wow. And, you know, in my experience, that, that speaks true from mm-hmm. the parents and kids that I've worked with. And there's a number of reasons why I think that is that we don't need to go into. But nah. lack of sleep depth and, you know, just difficulty in general with a child with special needs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Learning the parents is hard enough doing it and then having to do it very uniquely, even a bigger challenge. But the parents that tend to do it well and tend to stay together, they do have a lot of resources, Right or wrong, yep. the ones that have, you know, extra cash from whatever it is, yep. and can afford, you know, extra programs and therapies and mm-hmm. things for their children, that tends to help. So it does. It does. Um, it's not all about money in life, but if you don't have it, it it's difficult. I've had it, not had it. I prefer having it. <laughs> Anything else to add, Bane? On this, uh, maybe not as strong and angry of a podcast, but um, I think a, I think a valuable one. I think it was good information that people that don't have experience with autism, like we do, will get something out of. Yeah, it, not much else to add. Um, I I share a lot of very personal stuff, and and so I do just want to say to everyone that listened, thank you very much because it's uh, again a lot of really personal things I share in this episode. And so, um, but if anything about this autism. Uh, space you know interest you please do some research get figure out a way to contribute because these are some of the most beautiful people out there my experience has been that probably everybody you know at least knows one person on the spectrum they probably everybody you know at least has one family member or know somebody that has a family member on the spectrum if you, if you know us then you know someone <laughs> right exactly yeah. with that this is eric stone signing out strength and anger <laughs>